When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDIC. You're listening to Drifter Sympathy on Feral Audio. Go to feralaudio.com and click Shop Amazon to shop through their Amazon portal. Proceeds support this and other Feral Audio podcasts. Today we have a special guest in from Berlin. His name is Alex Hall and we've been making records and playing in bands for 16 years now. If you've ever heard any of our stuff in Grails or Lilacs and Champagne. We've pretty much toured around the world together and highly prioritized hitting record shops in all sorts of places, Australia or Switzerland or wherever. At some point, we got addicted to film music, which is really inevitable if you're in an instrumental band. Then that led to library music. And library music is a kind of deceptive term, but it essentially means you'd be working at a TV station and you would go into the sound library for some sort of backing track or mood piece to place the scene in a certain setting. It could be nature documentaries, or it could be after-school specials about your little sister who took too many drugs and got taken away by a motorcycle gang. When you bought your first couple of library records, is that kind of how you thought of it, too? Basically, you get the visual image of the guy going back into the the library and pulling stuff to be used in in a clutch moment. I had heard it for years, and I didn't even know what it meant. Like a lot of people, I think the first one I got was the Stringtronics record, which is maybe like the most famous of all. And it was described on the sticker on the reissue on the CD as library, and I I had no idea what that meant. And I had it for like three years before I actually put it together, you know, that it's production music.
So then maybe after you heard Mad Lib use that, you were perceiving that there's this direct relationship between hip-hop producers and library music records. a time where those records were literally they were literally throwing them away like you could see them in in the dumpster behind a record store but then the market changed because everybody started wanting them looking for them and you'd have to order them from all parts of the world we found a ton in australia at one of our favorite record shops in melbourne called licorice pie seemed to somehow trap library records from britain but the market became way more expensive to dig them out. I think largely because of the the super limited numbers that they were making, because they weren't made for commercial purposes. They were only being sent to to production houses around the world. So, like they only, you know, if they only had two thousand different producers on their client list, they would they'd, they'd probably press accordingly. So, like a lot of these records is are totally totally amazing, but they didn't make that many to begin with. So they're pretty obvious collectors' items. We'll have friends that own record stores that collect them, and they'll find some German guy that ran into a ton of like dead stock, like a back room at a radio station or something. Yeah, yeah, they didn't put them out on the curb. Yeah, yeah, totally. totally. Yeah. Pretty much as soon as you get into library music and you start reading about it, you come across the names Alan Hawkshaw and Brian Bennett, like two of the godfathers of the British school. Am I crazy, or does British music just sound unlike any other music? It has a very stately, royal, ancient sound Mm. to the way they conceive of their orchestral stuff. If Italians are kind of, like, emotional, that's just, like, pretty ham-fisted blanket statement. And and Americans are kind of, like, raw and earthy. Mm Mm-hmm. The, when you think of the British library music, I mean, you think of very exact enunciations of parts, and like the meter is very perfect to the very delicate. Like, there's never going to be anything behind the beat like an American. You never had that emotional connotation with the British stuff. It makes sense that you mention it. Yeah, I mean, like the the popular idea of like the the British studio engineers and the white lab coats. Like the ultra technicians, like in in that field or something. 
then that's very weird to think of it as this scientific method that's concocted in this antiseptic environment by this older world wisdom. And then it gets mm -hmm. used in American football games or like going to commercials. Like that's a weird relationship. And so I think you start to get into the juxtapositions and the, and the addiction of how they rub up against each other. When it came to like library production, like library music production houses, there was the English school, the Germans, and the French, but only Italians. But like, there wasn't really an American school. I mean, there was, but most of it's garbage. Is DeWolf British? DeWolf's British, Bruton, Chapel. Why is like, that? Like, they're all, they're all British. But what about Herb Pilhoffer? Well, he was American, but he was. <laughs> okay, we'll get to that next. All right, all right. One of my formative moments was finding Dossier by Alan Hawkshaw on YouTube. And there were Americans from the 70s, you know, that, that were hardcore football freaks that were saying with like misty eyes, they were saying like, oh, I remember when they used to play this song when my team was down and they were going to commercial and they'd freeze frame on like the coach with his head in his hands or somebody missing a pass and shaking their head. The agony of defeat, the thrill yeah. of victory. Oh, yeah. There's something so intoxicating about the idea that these British geniuses were composing. God knows like what what they were thinking when they were writing the music, but like but it's it's so hilarious and somehow kind of tragic or something that these great melody writers on par with the great composers in some way got kind of used and abused for like cheese commercials i remember thinking that was such a, a hilarious juxtaposition
High quality, fresh ingredients really make a meal taste great. But if you lack technical skills, it can be hard to cook for yourself, and eating out gets expensive. With Blue Apron, each meal comes with step-by-step directions, pre-portioned ingredients, and can be prepared in under 40 minutes. It's really easy to follow and make, even if you don't know a lot about cooking. For under $10 a person per meal, Blue Apron delivers seasonal recipes, working directly with farms to bring you fresh, sustainable ingredients. There's several delivery options, so you can choose what fits your needs. And there's no weekly commitment, so you only get deliveries when you want them. Check out this week's menu and get your first three meals free with free shipping by going to blueapron.com slash email. You'll love how good it feels and tastes to create incredible home-cooked meals with Blue Apron. So don't wait. That's blueapron.com slash E-M-I-L. Blue Apron. A better way to cook. So as soon as you start digging for this stuff and collecting it, you're already addicted to this idea that you're accessing a library behind the curtain of the music industry. This stuff never came out in stores, so you're simultaneously sad for the composers who are geniuses, and you are also excited that you are acquiring this kind of secret trove of material that was never really offered to the public. It takes so much effort to actually find the stuff because 99% of it is totally garbage. So when you actually find one of these gems in this just like this landfill of just absolute trash, like it's, it's, it's even more rewarding. So it's a high investment, but also high return sort of collecting habit. You inevitably find your composer that you have this weird special addiction yeah. to. I got really into Claude Larson, who's a f- French composer not that long ago. He's like he's, the ambient guy. He's pretty ambient, yeah. yeah. Machine Language by Claude Larson. Supposedly, a lot of those Claude Larson records were actually, there's nothing being played by humans. It's actually early, early MIDI computers that are playing the synths, which is kind of an aside, but maybe interesting if you consider that you could only do something like that really in the world of production music, like that that wouldn't have a lot of a commercial appeal. 
in a sense, they're realizing this freedom that nobody else gets to have, but they're relegated to this backroom weird role where they never will be truly integrated into the normal world that we all perceive music in. They're just like these kind of disfigured Wizard of Oz's in the back yeah. behind everything. So they get this incredible freedom nobody else gets to have, but then they also have to hide their face. It's true. The anonymity of it could either be like a, a, an open license for like ultimate creativity or just end up producing like paycheck music. You know, you, you can hear the guy almost like punching the clock and like, you know, playing the funk bass line and then, you know, and then smoking a cigarette and getting the check on the way out the door, you know. Like, it seems to kind of go both ways. Well, with that in mind, we'll play a little bit of Herb Pilhoffer. I heard about him first because he actually has these records. I can't remember what they're called, but they're like these, they're almost like an instructional library records where they separate each track. One track is just the shaker. Next track is just the horns. It's like a how-to guide for like a hip-hop producer. Oh, but but originally intended so that like the, the, the music programmer had more control to like, like almost like a dub guy bringing stuff in and out. He just goes straight for the commercial main vein. Like, he, he does this insane commercial for a, um, a snow cat. It was like, um, it's just like a fucking <laughs> what, a snowmobile. Like, why would you need an elaborate, like, 70s, beautiful female-led song about a snowmobile? Com- commissioned specifically for the snow cat? So moving to France, um, the Crea Sound label, in the pantheon of hilarious purposes to make music for, Alex was drooling over this uh, record called First Encounter. And normally if you found a record called First Encounter and you see two teens on the front about to make love, you'd think that was like an after-school special or something Mm -hmm. called that. But this is just music made for that situation, made for the occasion of two teens first disrobing and making love. (laughs) (laughs) So it's funny already, like you're you're reading about it or you finally hunted it out and, and you found it online or something. But then you actually hear it, and it has some of the best uh, compositions you've ever ever heard on a library record. And it has several of them. So as you dig deeper into the record, it's really one of those feelings where you you feel like you've found one of the the ancient wonders of the world or something. You know, this this secret uh, moment of music history or archaeology.
before we used to play like kind of a van game where we'd play the library music and you'd kind of have to like describe the scene of what you were seeing and obviously there you know these two teenage lovers are probably going deep into the zone but (laughs) (laughs) but the record is pretty well rounded and um, actually has a few hits and now we're going to play one of Alex's favorites called Cycles, which has a particularly different character. There's such an amazing skill to being able to develop inherent drama in a song like this. Like, this song has a character to it. You hear it, and there's an element of genius that is able to evoke maybe it's the killer taking off his motorcycle helmet, and you finally see who he is as he walks into his apartment and washes the blood off his hands or something. But there's something intensely like autumnal about this song, too. The way the, mm-hmm. the guitar hammer-ons kind of give you the sense of like leaves falling and the coloration of the organ. Yeah. No, that, that, that's a perfect descriptor, yeah. Autumnal, for sure. This is a French record. Often they're trying to evoke American situations. Like this song is called Colorado Sunset or something. I think there's Colorado Sunrise and Colorado Sunset on the record. There's always something like that. Like New York City nights or like, you know, (laughs) New Orleans boardwalk. And you're like, you can tell this person has never been there. I would have swore this was American because the drummer sounds like an old gospel soul drummer. (laughs) 
So maybe that's a big part of the thrill of it is that you're finding the diamond in a bunch of garbage, right? Because mm-hmm. that's clearly one of the great moments of, of library music in some way. And then right next to it, you'll find things you would want to avoid. Or the same shitty little like um, funk number done 20 different ways over an entire side of a record, right. stuff like that. Yeah. Both of us have definitely wasted massive amounts of money. We've seduced ourselves. Have you ever bought like a record of just like they call them links? Yeah, the little like really short segments. Yeah, like, to go between commercials or like exactly. Yeah, yeah. It reminds me of when we we're growing up, like when Ricky Schroeder would jump on his race car bed and <laughs> and be really sad because. <laughs> Or like the facts of life, like where like somebody got Blanche gets dumped. Blanche, is that her name? Blair. (laughs) Blanche is Blanche is a golden girl. (laughs) Uh, I mean, same thing. Blanche Blanche got dumped too. No, like let's say Ricky Schroeder gets grounded, right? And so going to commercial. It's a scene change thing because you'll hear the clarinet. It's always like a clarinet, and it's like, (laughs) whatever. (laughs) It's like it's the opening theme, but made really sad. So you 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 might end up accidentally buying an entire record of just those. You know, there's there's a lot of things that can go wrong buying these records. If you sell yourself on this whole karmic retribution idea of like rescuing these composers from anonymity you can you can spend a lot of money and not and and get burned pretty hard it's very easy to want to like something yeah exactly yeah these are the moments where you kind of realize you have to prove that something's yeah. good you can't just like play Claude Larson's like you know <laughs> song for grass growing. And yeah, that, that's that's a that's an important thing to mention about library music is that you actually have to you really have to lower your expectations to find enjoyment from it. And once you actually catch yourself doing that, you start to f- wonder why. Like, what's the point? Like, isn't isn't the idea of listening to music to have high expectations? You know? Get a taste of It's important to showcase how much time and 
effort is wasted and how much uh, humiliation is incurred <laughs> in <laughs> in record collecting. I mean, you know, to be fair, y- you rationalize it because it's it's your job if you're sampling four records because you're rescuing and repurposing something that would have largely been thrown away and just sitting in a landfill, but because it's executed so well and it does have an emotional or undercurrent that that maybe wasn't accessed for its commercial purposes i guess it's an extension of collage or something mm-hmm. like the modern movement of collage that you're you're stealing a piece of something and giving it a new yeah. face yeah the the art of the thing is is in the recontextualization there's a track on the Lilacs and Champagne record, Danish and Blue, called Hamburgers and Tangerines that has <laughs> that has a sample from this Bruton, Bruton music um, record called The Video Orchestra, which was this whole record of like themes that were clearly intended for like nightly news segments or, or like um, employee training videos or something with this like really cheesy sort of overly enthusiastic, you know, string sections, but we managed to turn it into this like uh, syrupy, berry white-ish love theme. Dr. Dre is looking for like the nastiest soul break. And we are looking for something totally embarrassing, but that has a dual identity. Yeah. Something that was made for a corporation to advertise dish soap, Mm. but is actually very sad. And it also kind of redeems these 80s scars that you have on your brain. You know, you couldn't really escape back then. You couldn't look at your phone. You had to sit in waiting rooms for two hours and just listen to this shit. That's what our lives were spent doing as as little kids. So this stuff has a certain um, torturous memory to it. But but if you pull it into your own music, you can kind of uh, own the damage. This is our only German library record for today. This is a track by Klaus Weiss. He's maybe the, the biggest name in German production music it's for the Selected Sound label. He's super, super famous jazz drummer, composer, producer, was in an amazing band called Niagara, but also did a lot of stuff, um, a lot of production music for the Selected Sound label, and this is one of the better tracks. Thank you. 
here is an example of what I was talking about earlier. This is a Dutch guy doing California industrial and scenic moods. So he must have been really inspired by some really evocative picture books of California, Sky Rises or something. He ends up kind of getting this super modern, like hyper-modern digital 80s wasteland zone or something. It's hard to tell if it's a genuine like expression from, from his perspective, like this is his masterpiece, or if it's just commissioned garbage, or it's meant to be really like devoid of soul and like purposely impersonal somehow. Mm-hmm. Maybe it was it was commissioned specifically for like obviously for industrial footage or something. But then you look back at it now in a postmodern sense and it seems all very knowing. Maybe that's the nature of the postmodern thing. It's just because this shit was created for commercial purposes, it just lodges itself in all of our brains, and then we just reference it because it was there. Yeah. For his time and for his purposes, it barely seems worth the time, effort, and money Mm -hmm. to get this orchestra to perform this little, like, string hit. But for my purposes with the MPC, it just sounds like he knew that people were going to be coming back for this. You mm-hmm. know what I mean? You ever get that spooky feeling like it's it's been made for us to dig for. Right, right. Instead of for the people of its time or something. Yeah. Like you have to admire their work ethic in a sense cuz like they're turning in work that is better than it needed to be. Is that what you, is that what you mean? 
Like, totally. Yeah, yeah. Like the producer, they 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 could have turned in stuff that was like half the quality, and they would have gotten paid the same amount. So it's like you, but you can hear like their pride in what they're doing coming through. They're probably not that happy about their their current situation that they're producing music anonymously for probably not very much money. You know, they they're not getting anything on the back end or any of that kind of you know publishing royalties, any of that kind of shit. But they still went in and they still wanted to do a good job that day. And so there's something very admirable about that. Yeah, that seems like a kind of more a Kone ethic. You know, yeah. like just complete perfectionism that overrides the quality of the picture it's being applied to. first person that gets to this sonic frontier always seems to take it further than the people that then codify it. Mm -hmm. You know, like Cluster's a great example. They're, by definition, exploring. They don't know where they're going. Mm -hmm. So they somehow end up covering way more ground than all the people that come right after and rip them off, you know? Mm -hmm. 
I think that's one of the rewarding subcategories of digging into this zone is that if you go back to these inception points, you really start to get the thrill of the exploratory character of these particular writers who don't literally know where they're going and are seizing the freedom that they're given by these commissioned openings. I mean, that's the high. When you really find like a really futuristic, weird record, then you're like, how the fuck did someone pay for this? Like, how was someone able to afford to make this, you know? Since we really didn't wear out the Brian Bennett, Alan Hawkshaw stuff from the British school, we're going to close with Strange Lands from Hawkshaw. It's kind of their signature sound. No other music that I've ever heard really sounds exactly like this. It's just their own planet that they came from. 